0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm going to tell you a few things this morning to start off with, uh, a few things about my wife that you may or may not know, and, sh- and I haven't shared this with her. Yeah. So Christmas doesn't sneak up on us at our home because Joy is crazy about Christmas, and she is declaring the event of Christmas weeks sometimes months beforehand. She pulls out her Christmas jumpers in October and starts wearing them uh, almost immediately. Here's good proof. Here she is in her Christmas jumper this morning. Uh, It wouldn't be odd to see her wearing Christmas uh, clothing at any point during the year, actually. Is that true? Yep, absolutely. Check Check her socks. She'll almost be wearing Christmas socks almost all the time. Uh, she never really stops watching Christmas movies, but she, she cranks up her Christmas uh, movie viewing patterns in the fall as it gets closer to Christmas. Right now, our, our Net, Netflix watch list is filled to the brim with Christmas movies that she either intends to watch or re-watch for the thousandth, thousandth time uh, as the day gets closer. If it wasn't for the fact that I like to celebrate one holiday at a time... Uh, Joy would probably decorate for Christmas in early November, October, maybe, yeah, yep. Um, she gets giddy when the stores take out the Christmas decorations and literally, and this actually happened, dances around the store uh, looking at all of the wonderful Christmas delights, right? Remember Duns? Yes, you did. You danced, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, she gleams with joy when she sees Christmas lights being put up around the town. Uh, She bakes desserts for all our neighbors, puts them in Christmas tins, and she can't wait to give them out. She collects nativity sets and has a dozen or more that she decorates our home with every year. When radio stations start playing Christmas songs, you can bet that our Alexa device is on and it's blaring her favorite Christmas songs. Christmas is easily her favorite holiday of the year, and she can't get enough of it. For joy, though, it's not about all the lights, the gifts, the food, and the festivities. It's about Jesus. Christmas is her favorite holiday because Jesus is her favorite. Like Christmas, she can't get enough of Jesus either. At our house, joy is a lot like John the Baptist, declaring uh, the coming of Jesus. There's no missing that we need to prepare our hearts and make way for the birth of Jesus at our house. I love you. So I have the privilege to uh, preach on the first week of Advent, and I'm excited to kick us off into the Advent season. Uh, Now, I want to make something clear. Advent isn't Christmas. Advent is about getting ready for Christmas. Advent is a Latin word, Adventus, uh, which means coming or arrival. And our reflection as Christians during these four weeks of Advent is to prepare our hearts for the arrival of Jesus. Jesus. In the quiet anticipation of Christmas, Advent is a profound time for spiritual reflection and preparation as we await the coming of our Messiah. 2,000 years ago, God incarnate stooped low, as Jason likes to say, to put on humanity and to die as a sacrifice for our sins. And someday, Jesus will come again, and Advent is a great opportunity to clean house spiritually as we prepare for the imminent second coming of Jesus, when he will judge the living and the dead, and put everything right. One of my favorite songs that we sing during Advent is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's not a Christmas song. It's an Advent song. The song drips with anticipation. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's a song of longing, of waiting, of anticipation, and of hope. The spirit of the Advent season is wrapped up in this song. Today, we're going to dig into some of the major uh, thoughts in this passage from John one to learn who Jesus is, why he came, and what John the Baptist has to teach us about uh, about the Advent season as written by the Apostle John. So when we look at John 1, it begins differently than the other Gospels. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus. Mark starts with the preaching of John the Baptist. Luke begins with a dedication of his work to Theophilus and then follows with a prediction of the birth of John the Baptist. But John, John begins with a theological prologue. It's almost as if John is saying, I want you to consider Jesus and his teachings and deeds, but you won't get the fullest picture of who Jesus is unless you view him from this point of view, that he is God manifest in the flesh, and his words and deeds are to be taken from this vantage point. John begins in verse 1, if you have your Bibles with you, by paying tribute to the first words in Genesis as he builds a bridge between the creation story and Jesus. Both start with the words in the beginning, but this time John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word so beautifully described here is Jesus, and it places him within the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. And then in verse 2, Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God. Jesus was not created at one point in time. In eternity past, the Father God and the Son, the Word, were always in loving communion with each other. In verse 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The great philosophers like to ask, why is there something rather than nothing? The Christian answer is God. God is eternal, and he is the creator of all things. And Jesus, the Word, was the agent of all creation. All creation was made by the Word in relation with the Father and the Spirit. And then verse 4 goes on to say, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Going back to his Genesis imagery, John paints the picture of Jesus as the light and the life. Life is man's most important asset, right? To lose life is a tragedy. John affirms here that in the ultimate sense, life is in Christ. Man's physical and spiritual life comes from Jesus. Light is often used in the Bible as an emblem of God, whereas darkness is often used as an expression for death, ignorance, sin, and separation from God. In Isaiah 9:2, the prophet described the coming of salvation as the people living in darkness seeing a great light. The nature of light is to shine and dispel the darkness. Darkness is physically unable to overpower light. Light invades the dominion of darkness. I remember once being uh, on a Boy Scout camp out uh, where we were exploring a deep cave in the California desert. And without the the torches, or flashlights as we called them, uh, in our hands, uh, we would have been lost. And at one point, when we were in the deepest recesses of the cave, our scout leaders told us to turn all of our torches off. And we sat in deep and debilitating darkness. You could see nothing, not even the hand in front of your face. It was almost oppressive. When Jesus came into the world... The light of the world invaded that oppressive darkness. When Jesus, um, I'm sorry, one, one of the original verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which we'll sing uh, after this sermon, is, O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. This is the hope of Jesus coming into the world, because in doing so, he brings the light of life, into our world of darkness, death, sin, and separation from God. Now, let's skip ahead to verse 9. Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, described here as the true light, shines on each person either in salvation or in illuminating them with regard to their sin and coming judgment. In verse 10, it says that, Uh, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Even though the world was made through him, they did not know him because the world is in disobedience to God and under the rulership of Satan. The failure to recognize him was not because God was somehow hidden, but because mankind was blind and ignorant due to their sin. And then in perhaps one of the saddest verses in the Bible, in verse 11, it says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Jesus appeared among His own people, the nation of Israel, but they as a whole rejected Him. They refused to accept Him as the revelation sent by the Father, the true Messiah, and they refused to obey His commands. But in verse 12, we learn that this unbelief was not universal, there were some who received the word and now John focuses on these people. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. People are not naturally children of God, we, we, uh, but we have the right to become his children by receiving the gift of new birth given by God. This uh, verse spells out clearly for us how we can become children of God. It's it's not by good works. It's not by church membership. It's not by doing one's best, but by receiving him and believing in his name. When John spells out the ways that we are not born again, he is uh, making it clear to us that it is all God and not of man. First John says, not of blood. This means that you don't become Christians by having Christian parents. Salvation is not passed down from the parent to the child. This is why Joy and I have always emphasized to our sons that they need to make their faith their own. No one can ride someone else's coattails into heaven. Second, we're not born again by the will of the flesh. In other words, we don't have the power in and of ourselves to produce new birth. We may want very much to see someone in our family or our friend group accept the Lord, but we can't will them into salvation. No, the answer to how we find new birth is found in the words, but of God. The power to produce new birth does not rest with anything or anyone but God alone. Moving into verse 14, it says, and this is probably one of the most uh, popular Christmas verses And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh when Jesus was born in a manger at Bethlehem. As we've already talked about, Jesus always existed as the Son of God with the Father in heaven, but now He chose to come into the world in a human body. The word dwelt is more literally translated as pitched his tent. It was not just a short appearance. He lived as a man among men. His body was the tent in which he lived among mankind for 33 years. And because he came, we have seen his glory. Not a a visible glory as was shown to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, but the moral glory of a life perfectly lived on earth and he was full of grace and truth. On the one hand, he was full of undeserved kindness for others, but on the other hand, he was also completely honest and upright. He never excused sin or approved evil. This is a feat that only God can do, to be completely gracious and completely righteous at the same time. In verse 16, it goes on to say that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ receives supplies of spiritual strength out of his fullness. His fullness is so complete that he can provide for all Christians in all countries in all ages. The expression grace upon grace means abundant grace. God's gracious favor that he showers on his beloved children. Now, if you've been following along, you've noticed that I've skipped over all of the John the Baptist verses that are sprinkled in here. Uh, I'd like to go back now and focus on the character of John the Baptist to explore his role in the Advent story. Let's start with a quick overview about who John the Baptist was. If God's intention was to draw a large crowd before introducing his son to the world, John the Baptist was a great choice. He was bizarre. While other Jewish spiritual leaders dressed for success in imported robes and oversized prayer shawls, John wore scratchy camel hair garments tied together with a simple leather belt. While the religious elite of the time ate rich food, John's meals consisted of locusts and wild honey. John would be considered retro in his time, embodying the spirit of the prophets of of old, when a time when prophets were merely uh, nothing more than a little nostalgic characters from Jewish history. John was genuine. His words and actions rang true, echoing the sentiments of the old time prophets who called on Israel to repent of their sins. Crowds certainly loved him, and this is confirmed not only in the Bible but in ancient Roman and, and, uh, and Rome, uh, Jewish history books as well. So John was a miracle baby born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren and elderly, uh, but the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and announced John's birth saying, he will precede the coming of the Lord, preparing the people for his arrival. Elizabeth and Mary were related. The Bible doesn't say specifically how, but uh, six months after the announcement of John's birth, the angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would give birth to Jesus. Then Mary, newly pregnant with Jesus, uh, paid a visit to Elizabeth, and John the Baptist, in utero, jumps for joy inside Elizabeth's womb. John would grow up to be a monk like prophet living in the wilderness. Why he chooses this lifestyle as opposed to following his father's path into the priesthood is a mystery. John was indeed a unique character, but he definitely fulfilled his calling to be a witness to the coming of the Lord. So let's go back and let's pick up John's story starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist's mission was to announce the coming of Christ and to tell people to get ready to receive him. He came to testify to the fact that Jesus truly was the light of the world so that all people might put their trust in him. He came not to draw attention to himself, but to point people to Jesus. Moving ahead to verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist was born about six months earlier, but it makes it clear that even though Jesus came after him, both in birth and in ministry, Jesus was God eternal who existed before him. Because of this, Jesus was number one, not John. Then to reiterate this point even further, there's an interesting dialogue between John the Baptist and the priest and Levites from Jerusalem recorded here in verses 19 through 27. We'll kind of go through this as well. When the news spread that John was telling the nation to repent because the Messiah was coming, the Jews sent a contingent of priests and Levites to find out who this man was. John knew what they were getting at right away, and he said pointedly, I am not the Christ." John was a faithful witness who never pointed to himself, but only pointed to Jesus. Because the Jews believed that Elijah would return to uh, to the earth prior to the coming of Christ, they logically deduced that maybe John was Elijah. But John assured them that he was not. Then they asked him if John was the prophet. In Deuteronomy uh, eighteen fifteen, Moses had said, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers." It is to him you shall listen. The Jews remembered this prediction and wondered if this could be John. But again, John says no. The committee obviously would be embarrassed to go back home without a definite answer, so they asked John for a final statement about who he was. In answer to to their query, John quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 3, stating that he was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, John says that he was the forerunner who was predicted. John was the voice, and Israel was the wilderness. Wilderness was a common expression for barren and lifeless deserts that surrounded the area of Israel. Because of their sin and departure from God, the people of Israel were dry and lifeless like a desert. John's message to them was. Make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, hey, the Messiah is coming. Remove everything from your life that would hinder you from receiving him. Repent of your sins so that he can come and reign over you as the King of Israel. The group then asks John, why is he baptizing if he's not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answers that. Uh, answers them by saying that he baptizes with water. He didn't want anyone to think he was important. His task was simply to prepare people for Christ. When one of his audience repented of their sins, he, he baptized them in water as an outward symbol of their inward change. He finishes his answer to the religious elite by saying that among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Here, John the Baptist clearly refers to Jesus. The Pharisees did not recognize him as a long-awaited Messiah. In fact, uh, in effect, John was saying to them, do not think of me as a great man. The one you should be paying attention to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's worthy. It was the duty of a slave or a servant to untie the sandals of their master, but John says that he's not even worthy to perform such a task on Jesus. So how do we tie all this together? How do we, uh, what can we learn from these verses and apply to our lives uh, from the scripture that we've read through today? First, in this Advent season, I want to challenge you to consider areas of your lives where you need the light of Christ to dispel the darkness perhaps sin, doubt, fear, lack of faith, unforgiveness, worry, or negativity, that I want you to ask God in prayer to identify those specific areas in your life where Christ's light needs to shine. And then with God's help, I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into those areas for transformation. Second, I want you to heed the call of John the Baptist as he urges you to prepare the way for the Lord. I want to challenge you to examine your life and identify areas where you can actively prepare for Christ's presence, whether that be repenting of a known sin in your life, making room for him in your hearts by removing idols that maybe have taken the place of Christ, or being intentional in your spiritual disciplines. William Barclay, the Scottish theologian, once said, the best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is never to forget the presence of Christ. I'm gonna say that one again because I just love that quote. The best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is never to forget the presence of Christ. Third, Advent is a time for receiving Jesus. I want to encourage you to reflect on your own openness to receiving Christ into your life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your savior, I want to admonish you to accept him. The Bible says that we're all sinners in need of a savior. Jesus paid a terrible, terrible price for your salvation by dying on the cross for your sins. That's why he came to save us. 1 Timothy 1:15 says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. So, if you know this morning that you're a sinner who is in need of a Savior, please find myself, Jason, or any of the elders after the service, and we would all be happy to talk with you and pray with you. The image of John the Baptist, dressed in camel hair and eating locusts, preaching the message of repentance and, and authentic sorrow for sins, provides a stark contrast to the marketing images. Flooding us of jolly Santas and piles of presents and delicious foods. I can understand why marketers find Santa and reindeer more appealing for sales than a prophet from the desert speaking about sin. And uh, but the ever-present advertising easily obscures the serious spiritual work that we are meant to do. People feel increasing pressure to prepare for Christmas by finding the perfect gift within the time constraints of frantic schedules and limited budgets. Nevertheless, the gospel writers remind us that preparation for Christmas is ultimately preparation for the incarnation of of God, our Savior. He brings the gift of heaven, but we must prepare ourselves to receive that gift through repentance. In the midst of holiday parties and, and hectic schedules, spiritual disciplines... Self-examination and remorse for sins is harder to carve time for, and yet these are the most important. In the book, Advent, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room, Carrie Van Der says this, the message of Advent doesn't fit neatly into a soundbite or a vignette. It's too complex, too deep to compete with glitter and noise. And it's a hard sell in a culture that would rather skip straight to the big finish. But Advent is too important to be forgotten because it is this season that prepares us to encounter our Lord. Advent's become an uphill battle, but the view from the top makes climbing it worth all the effort it took to get there. Advent beckons us to behold the light, the light that shines in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. As we navigate the challenges of life, may we find comfort and courage in the brilliance of Christ's presence. Just as a single candle can dispel the deepest shadows, so does the light of Christ illuminate our way. This Advent, let us be intentional in our preparations. Let us repent of anything that hinders our communion with Christ and actively make room for him to dwell in our hearts. Just as John pointed to the Lamb of God, may our lives point to the redemptive work of Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. As we journey through Advent, may we carry the light with us, allowing it to not only transform our own lives, but the lives of those around us. In the hustle and bustle of the season, may we radiate the grace upon grace that we have received, extending it to others in a world hungering for the love of Christ. In closing, let us walk in the footsteps of John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord in our hearts and in the lives of those we encounter. May the light of the world shine brightly in and through us, bringing hope peace, and joy to a world in need. Advent is not merely a countdown to Christmas. Advent is a spiritual pilgrimage, a journey of the heart toward the manger where we encounter the Word made flesh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to pray, and uh, if America and the team would like to come up and sing uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel my favorite Advent song. Dear Jesus, thank you for pitching your tent among us and saving us from our sins so that we can have a renewed and complete relationship with our Heavenly Father. Prepare us for your coming, not only as we remember your first coming, but as we get nearer to your second coming. Help us to spread the light that dispels the darkness to a weary and yearning world. Help us to use this Advent season to prepare a way for you in our hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.